October 6th, 1875. Wednesday morning in St. Albans, and Aldous Brannard is reading the paper. He's at his house on North Main Street, or at his offices in the Brannard Block. He's taking breakfast, perhaps, or sitting at his desk, when he unfolds the Daily Messenger to its second page, a headline reading, Another New Hampshire Horror. A schoolgirl outraged and murdered. He reads about Josie Langmaid, 17, who disappeared Monday morning while walking to school near Suncook, New Hampshire. Twelve hours later, her body was found in the woods at a place called Giles Swamp. The details are shocking. Josie was beaten and beheaded, her body mutilated with a small knife. The killer cut off Josie's dress and arranged the torn fabric over her as a kind of shroud. Her head was found the next day, wrapped in her own cape. Brannard finishes the article. Maybe he reads it again, thinking of Marietta Ball. How she too was attacked on the road, outraged and murdered, her body posed and covered with her own clothing. He sends for wanton Abel. The men are likely on uncertain terms following the hearing in August, but Abel comes to his office directly, and Brannard questions him, asks after the other residents of East Hill. Had anyone moved away recently? There was someone, yes, says Abel. A French-Canadian family named LePage, or was it LePage? The father, Joseph, was something of a drifter, given to wandering the woods of East Hill. He spoke little English, worked as a farmhand and a woodchopper. Joseph LePage. The name is familiar to Brannard, who recalls a shabby figure, shod in moccasins and wearing a straw steeple hat. The man's hair was black, as Brannard remembers. So were his eyes. Where did they go? Brannard asks. After they left the hill. New Hampshire, Abel says, a place called Suncook. Welcome to these dark mountains. This is Marietta Ball, Part 2, The Suncook Town Tragedy. Josie Langmaid was born in November 1857, the oldest of her father's five children. Her father James was among the wealthiest residents of Pembroke, New Hampshire, a township near Concord that encompasses much of the village of Suncook. Like Marietta, Josie was universally esteemed and beloved in her community. She was young and beautiful and active in her church's Sunday school, as well as a gifted student. The principal of Pembroke Academy, where she attended school, later paid tribute to Josie's intellectual superiority and loveliness of character. 
The academy wasn't far from the Langmaid home, around one and a half miles through woods and swamp. Josie was accustomed to walk there on school mornings, typically in the company of her friend Lilla Fowler, who'd meet Josie near the edge of the woods on Academy Road. On Monday, October 4th, Lilla Fowler arrived at the meeting place as usual. Josie wasn't there. Lilla waited, but her friend never arrived, and she accepted a ride from a passing neighbor, supposing Josie was already ahead of her, that they would see each other at the academy. They didn't. In fact, Josie was running late. Her brother Waldo, 16, also attended the academy and left home at 8 o'clock, but it was another 30 minutes or so before Josie followed, hurrying along in her blue cape with her schoolbook under her arm. She passed the Hoyt farm at around half past 8, and afterward wished a pleasant good morning to Deacon Gile as he drove past her on the road. No one saw her after that. At around half past four that afternoon, Waldo Langmaid returned home and asked after his sister. Not at school, his mother Sarah replied. Where can she be? They went in search of her. James Langmaid dispatched swift messengers to Suncook to alert the community, and then called in person on his friends and neighbors. By seven o'clock that evening, a party of a hundred searchers had assembled near the woods on Academy Road. October 4th, Autumn's Peak, the trees in their colors and darkness falling early. The sun went down, and the men lit lanterns, searching along Academy Road until they came to a patch of trodden grass beside the roadway. A struggle had taken place there, it seemed, and there were tracks leading into the woods of Giles' swamp. A man named Daniel Merrill found the body. There it is, he shouted, and the men converged. Their lanterns guttered on a scene of horror. Josie lay on her back with one arm across her chest, the other pinned beneath her. Her head was gone. Her skirts were shredded and saturated, cut away from the body, then draped over the corpse. James Langmaid accompanied his daughter's body back to the house the same house from which she had left for school less than twelve hours earlier. A post-mortem examination followed, at which it was determined Josie had been sexually assaulted and then decapitated with a small, sharp knife. The body was also mutilated in a manner described in the papers as too horrible for publication. Daybreak, October 5th, and the search for evidence resumed. Charles Silly found a thick club, broken in two pieces by the side of Academy Road. One piece was sticky with blood, but had been rubbed with sand in an apparent attempt to clean it. Silly also recovered Josie's schoolbook, while other searchers turned up her hat, hair switch, and comb. Josie's head was found later that morning, wrapped in her own cape. The face has sustained multiple blunt force injuries, but the skull was intact. Her cheek showed the clear imprint of a man's boot heel, five nails in a semicircle, suggesting he had braced her head with his boot while cutting at her neck. The attack was thought to be premeditated. Evidence indicated the murderer had lain in wait among the bushes and attacked Josie as she passed by, 
She'd struggled, losing her hat, and the killer had beaten her with the club before dragging her into the woods. This was rural New England, 13 years before the Ripper murders in Whitechapel. Such crimes were nearly unimaginable. The village of Suncook was in shock, and the selectmen of Pembroke offered a reward of $2,000 for information leading to an arrest. Detectives Clifton Hildreth and Albion Dearborn were hired to pursue the investigation. Their suspicions quickly fixed on 22-year-old William Drew, who lived near the crime scene and was observed in the vicinity on the morning of October 4th. Drew had previously worked with his father, a butcher, and had a reputation as a dissolute fellow. Perhaps most compellingly, Drew was also known to carry a sharp dirk knife that was now missing. Drew was arrested and transported to the jail in Suncook, where he was held in custody while the detectives continued their investigation. They spoke with a Miss Carrie Lake, 17, who claimed acquaintance with Josie and told authorities the girl had confided in her concerning William Drew. According to Lake's story, Drew had surprised Josie on her way to school one morning in the summer. His intentions were plain enough, and Josie had struck him with her parasol. Drew swore he would get even with her, and threatened to cut off her damned head. This story was widely circulated, but apparently untrue. Drew possessed an alibi for the time of the murder, and Carrie Lake's character and honesty were later called into question. Around this time, the selectmen of Pembroke received a letter from H. H. Farnsworth of St. Albans, Vermont. Farnsworth's letter read, in part, Gents, I have thought best to write you, after hearing of the terrible affair which has occurred in your midst. One year ago, on the 24th day of last July, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, as Miss Ball was going from the schoolhouse to her house, she was murdered in a small piece of woods. Among the persons suspected, there was one by the name of Parrish or LePage. He was strongly suspected, and was examined, but I was not satisfied. Should you have occasion to investigate him, I should be glad to know the result. The letter itself is not in dispute. However, the circumstances in which it was written remain unclear. In later statements, Farnsworth claimed He'd long suspected LePage in Marietta's murder, but was unable to find enough evidence to prosecute. Ultimately, he was forced to release LePage, but suspected him immediately upon learning of the Langmaid case. Wanton Abel rebutted this claim, insisting instead that he himself had read of Josie's death, and soon after became convinced the crime was linked to Marietta's murder. He remembered Joseph LePage, a French-Canadian who had recently moved down to Suncook and made an appointment to see Farnsworth. According to Abel, Farnsworth had little or no memory of LePage and was hesitant to contact authorities in Suncook and only did so at Abel's insistence. In later years, Abel would attempt to claim the $2,000 reward offered by the selectmen of Pembroke, but he wasn't successful. He sued the town and subsequently lost in the courts. 
Aldous Brannard's account of events didn't surface until 1905, when Brannard was 81 and three years away from death. By then, the reward money was long gone, and Abel and Farnsworth were both in their graves. Brannard had little to gain by coming forward, and nothing to lose. In a 1905 letter to the St. Albans Daily Messenger, Brannard recalled how he had read of the Langmaid murder in the papers and recognized a number of similarities to the Ball murder of the previous year. He then sent for Wanton Abel, who came to his office. Of Abel's own claim to have solved the Ball and Langmaid murders, Brannard wrote, Sometime afterward, Mr. Abel's called at my office and told me that he had tried to get a part of the reward offered by the town of Suncook. I told him he should have known better, that he was working under me, and that both he and Mr. Farnsworth knew I was not working for pay. Brannard questioned Abel concerning recent events on the hill, and Abel mentioned Joseph LePage, who had moved to Suncook. That was all Brannard needed to hear. He went next door with Abel to see Farnsworth, who had his insurance offices in the same building. As Brannard has it, Farnsworth remembered LePage, if only slightly, and didn't consider him a serious suspect. He had an alibi, didn't he? He did, yes. But Brannard didn't care. An alibi could be invented or broken, and Brannard was by now convinced of LePage's guilt. In his own words, I firmly believe that an overruling providence gave me the idea that these two murders were committed by the same person and made it possible to bring the guilty criminal to justice. Brannard feared LePage would escape justice a second time and urged Farnsworth to travel to Suncook without delay. But Farnsworth was reluctant, thinking perhaps of his own reputation and of his failure to solve the case, and settled at last for dispatching a letter with Brannard's suspicions. The letter reached Selectman Trueworth Fowler in Pembroke on October 9th or 10th. He reviewed the letter in his official capacity, but even so, he must have been astonished and disturbed. Because Fowler's own daughter Lilla was Josie's school friend who walked with her most mornings, save on October 4th when Josie was late and Lilla had accepted a ride. Furthermore, the selectman knew Joseph LePage. In fact, he had hired the Frenchman as recently as September to help thresh the rye. LePage had spent several days at work on Fowler's farm. Like as not, he'd seen Lilla. He might even have noticed Josie. The selectman relayed Farnsworth's tip to investigators Hildreth and Dearborn. The detectives had previously questioned LePage as a possible witness but LePage denied he was anywhere near Academy Road on October 4th. After receiving Farnsworth's letter, they questioned him again. At this second interview, LePage repeated his earlier claim that he was chopping wood at the time of the murder. He said he'd left home early, around 6, and visited a local bakery before shouldering his axe and entering the woods. Only he'd lost his way, and wandered about the forest until he came upon a group of workmen building a shanty. These men were able to direct him, and LePage emerged from the woods at around two in the afternoon. 
This story satisfied the detectives, and they let him go. Both men strongly favored William Drew as a suspect and saw no reason to hold LePage in custody. News of this development reached the state's attorney general in Concord, who had taken a personal interest in the case. He wasn't pleased. Bypassing Hildreth and Dearborn, he appointed Detective Moses Sargent to lead the investigation, a turn of events that Dearborn later described as the nastiest trick ever played upon him. Sargent was a highly experienced investigator and formerly captain of the detective force in Boston. He traveled by train to Suncook and proceeded to the LePage home where he placed Joseph under arrest. The Frenchman's overcoat was spotted with blood, Sargent noticed, and he confiscated the man's knife and razor, as well as his clothes and boots. Everything was sent for analysis, and here, Sargent's instincts, and indeed Brannard's, proved sound. Blood on the overcoat was confirmed to be human, while the doctor was able to match LePage's boot heel to the marks on Josie's face. Other evidence emerged. Multiple witnesses placed LePage near Academy Road on the morning of the murder, while two women, mother and daughter, identified LePage as the strange man who had chased after them on an occasion in late September. The most damning evidence, surely, was that of Andrew Fowler, Trueworth Fowler's son and Lilla's older brother. Andrew recalled an occasion on September 24th when he was working with LePage and Lilla came home from school. LePage asked Andrew who she was. My sister, he said. LePage wanted to know more. Where she went to school. How she got there. Andrew told him. This story suggested Lilla was likely the intended victim. That LePage had left the bakery shortly after 7 o'clock and walked to Academy Road. Along the way, he hid his axe and took a stick from a woodpile. He reached the road and hid himself among the bushes to lie in wait for Lilla Fowler, who never came. The hours passed, and he grew impatient and raged. The school bells rang, and he was ready to give up. Then he heard footsteps. Joseph LePage was born Joseph Paget in 1835 or 36 in the village of Saint-Mélanie in the Joliet district of Quebec, around 50 miles northwest of Montreal. His father was a farmer and said to be quite respectable, as was LePage himself, at least in his earlier years. LePage was 20 when he married Eulalie Rousse of neighboring Saint-Amboise-de-Kildare. The couple had five children together, three sons and two daughters. Around 1861, the family moved to the village of Scherzi, where LePage's behavior began to change. In Scherzi, LePage contracted bad habits and took to mingling with the most vile and despicable company. In his late twenties now, he was becoming violent. He abused his wife and children and once even harnessed Ulali to a cart 
and forced her to haul it behind her like a mule. The LePage family remained in Chertsey for about four or five years until 1865 or 66, when they returned to Saint-Amboise briefly before moving from there to Saint-Béatrice, also in the Joliet district. But LePage was losing control. In June of 1871, he sexually assaulted his sister-in-law, Juliana Roos, choking her into unconsciousness and leaving her for dead. LePage was arrested, but escaped from custody and fled into the woods. A couple of months later, he returned to Saint-Béatrice to collect his family before traveling south and crossing the border into Vermont. The LePage family arrived in St. Albans in the fall of 1871, where they settled on East Hill under the name of LePage, taking lodgings at the Ledoux farm. Around this same time, Marietta Ball, walking home one night, was chased by a man in St. Albans village. This could very well have been LePage. He was in the area, after all, and known to stalk and pursue young women. It isn't impossible. In St. Albans, Joseph developed a reputation as a violent man given to anger and obscenity. He left Quebec behind him, but continued to brood over his earlier arrest, the perceived injustice of it. And in August of 1872, he returned to Saint Beatrice to take his revenge. There, he set fire to a barn that belonged to a man who had assisted in his 1871 arrest, then attacked the man's sister, beating her savagely with a stick. Probably he intended to assault her sexually, but she was able to get away and raise the alarm. LePage sought for shelter at a windmill. The miller was out, but the miller's daughter, a girl of 14, served LePage a meal. Afterward, he insisted on paying, only to reveal he had lost his wallet. He asked the girl to come outside to help him look, but she was suspicious of his motives and declined. He threatened her, but the girl pretended she heard her father coming with a big dog, and LePage ran off. He returned to St. Albans and resumed his life of farm jobs and lumberjacking, wandering in the woods. In July of 1874, he was one of several men arrested and questioned in connection with the Ball murder. He initially attracted attention due to the deep scratches on his face, but testified he had received these while berry-picking. Another French-Canadian provided him with an alibi for the time of the murder, and he wasn't questioned again. In March of 1875, the LePage family left St. Albans and relocated to Suncook, New Hampshire. Seven months later, Josie Langmaid was dead, and LePage was under indictment for her murder. Around this time, a man named John Reel came forward with new evidence in the Ball case. Reel lived on East Hill in St. Albans, and had employed LePage as a farm laborer at the time of Marietta's arrival. Real recalled that LePage had taken an interest in the new schoolteacher, describing her as good enough to hug. Real's daughter attended the number two schoolhouse on East Hill and recounted a separate incident in which LePage had inquired after Marietta. He asked the girl 
where her teacher went on weekends, as he had noticed she didn't return home on Friday afternoons. She told him of Marietta's visits to the Page Farm, of her lonesome walks through the broken timber. On January 4th, 1876, LePage stood trial and conquered for the murder of Josie Langmaid. The sensation can hardly be overstated. Photographs of Langmaid and LePage were printed and sold as souvenirs, and a murder ballad circulated under the title of The Suncook Town Tragedy, or Josie Langmaid. Proceedings lasted nine days in all. On the first day, jurors were sworn in and traveled to Suncook to visit the crime scene, accompanied by LePage, who is said to have shown no emotion. Back in the courtroom, Josie's parents detailed the circumstances of her disappearance, while friends and neighbors described the searches of October 4th and the finding of her body in Giles' swamp. These facts established, the prosecution presented its case. Witnesses placed LePage near the crime scene on October 4th and testified to his habit of chasing young women, while experts detailed the physical evidence against him, the blood on his clothes, the marks on Josie's face. They described her injuries and mutilations in distressing detail and confirmed LePage's knife could have been the murder weapon. The defense sought to cast doubt on the prosecution's findings through cross-examination, but it seems their efforts made little impression on the jury. And the evidence against LePage was already overwhelming by the time Julia Roos took the stand and testified to the circumstances of her 1871 assault. At the time, she was living in St. Beatrice and working as a hired girl for a family named Marion. One morning, at around 7 o'clock, she went up to the pasture for milking. A man was waiting for her. He wore linen trousers, a red flannel shirt, a buffalo hide mask concealed his face, and he was carrying a length of pine root as thick as her arm. She turned, tried to run, but he was too fast. He tackled her to the ground and she fought against him, pushing the mask up over his forehead. She recognized him immediately. A woodcut engraving depicts this moment at the trial. It shows Julienne pointing at LePage as she describes what he did to her, how he beat her and raped her and strangled her until she blacked out. Jury deliberations were brief. They took only a single ballot before returning with a guilty verdict. The courtroom erupted in applause. The Langmaids clutched at each other, weeping and the judge pronounced the sentence. As a servant of the law, the court decrees that you be imprisoned in the state prison at Concord until the 19th day of January in the year of our Lord, 1877. And on that day, between the hours of 10 in the forenoon and two in the afternoon, you be hanged from the neck until dead. And pardon me to say that all the days to come to you in this life must be full of sorrow. H. H. Farnsworth had traveled from St. Albans to attend the trial. At one point, he was even called for questioning, though his testimony wasn't permitted. 
and ultimately LePage was never tried for the murder of Marietta Ball. After LePage's sentencing, a newspaper reporter in Concord spoke with a man from St. Albans concerning the Ball murder. This was probably Farnsworth, as he claimed again that LePage was always suspected but wasn't charged solely on account of a lack of evidence. The consequence was that he escaped. We wanted to lynch him then, and sir, it would have been a lucky thing for this other unfortunate girl, Josie Langmaid, if we had only hung him up on a tree to feed the crows and buzzards. This version of events would seem to be inaccurate. LePage's 1874 arrest wasn't reported in the papers at the time, and it doesn't appear he was publicly identified as the suspect until 1875. Some papers did report a near lynching on East Hill, but this was after Frank Harris's arrest, not LePage's. Among those who'd suspected Frank Harris was Marietta's father, George Ball. By the time of Joseph LePage's trial, Ball was living in Oakland, California, a widower of 14 years who'd outlived four of his 10 children. His health, long in decline, was failing him at the last, but he must have held on, waiting for news from Concord, because LePage was sentenced on January 13th, and Ball died just six days later. His body was transported to St. Albans and buried in Greenwood Cemetery. Meanwhile, LePage's lawyers filed an appeal on his behalf and won. A judge determined that Julia Roos should not have been permitted to testify at trial. LePage was subsequently retried in 1877 and convicted a second time, sentenced to hang on March 15, 1878. On the evening of the 14th, he was transferred from his cell to a small sitting room where he met with two priests. They conversed with LePage in French and departed just before midnight. For the next half hour, LePage remained perfectly quiet before dropping to his knees before the prison warden, sobbing. I kill girl, yes, he said. I kill two girl, too bad, too bad. LePage admitted he had killed Josie Langmaid, and in much the manner Sargent had deduced. His wife, he claimed, realized he was guilty and called him a bad man before burning most of his clothing, an accusation Ulali later denied. He confessed to Marietta's murder as well. The warden wasn't fully conversant with the facts of the case, but LePage provided a hand-drawn map of the crime scene on East Hill and described in detail how the murder was committed. July 24th, 1874, LePage was working in the fields near the Ledoux house on East Hill when he heard school letting out. He'd been watching Marietta for weeks and had learned of her walks to the Page farm. He slipped away from work unnoticed, and another man working the same field would later provide him an alibi. From the Ledoux farm, LePage ran south through the woods, meaning to head off Marietta at the plank bridge. He reached the ambuscade he'd prepared previously, then concealed himself behind the bushes. Marietta came down the road, carrying her nightgown and linens. He donned his mask, 
stepped out from the bushes. She ran, and he chased her. Afterward, he dragged her body as far as he could manage, but the time was short, he knew, if his absence were to remain undiscovered. It was tiring work, and he made it only 80 yards or so before he abandoned the body beside a stump and made for the hill at a run. All this he related to the prison warden and his deputy, along with one other bizarre detail. It seems LePage was deeply disturbed by sleeping Lucy's messages from the spirit world. LePage was illiterate, but had learned of her predictions somehow, and believed she had identified him as the killer. He made plans to leave St. Albans, just as he had fled Saint Beatrice, but abandoned the scheme for fear it might attract unwanted attention. He assumed he was under surveillance, couldn't have known no one was watching. Unlike the next morning, March 15, 1878, when LePage was led to the gallows, Farnsworth was there, as was James Langmaid, Josie's father. They watched the Frenchman mount the scaffold. Officials covered the condemned man's face with a hood and fastened the noose about his neck. Sheriff Dodge read the warrant and pronounced the sentence. And now, Joseph LePage, in accordance with the command, I proceed to execute the sentence of death by hanging you from the neck until you are dead, and may God have mercy on your soul. Dodge depressed the pedal with his foot. A trapdoor opened, and LePage dropped through, falling six feet and snapping his neck. He died quickly and didn't struggle, but authorities waited half an hour before taking down the body. No one wanted it. LePage was a Catholic, but had been excommunicated after the attack on Julien Roos. For this reason, he was refused burial in the Catholic cemetery in Suncook and was interred instead in a pauper's grave in Concord's Blossom Hill Cemetery. His story doesn't end there, though. LePage was dead and buried, and still the papers continued to report on the French monster, as he was known. In late March, multiple newspapers linked LePage to an 1867 double murder near the village of Saint-Alexandre in the Iberville district of Quebec. According to these reports, the wife and teenage daughter of a man named Georges Fauti were murdered and mutilated one evening in October of 1867 after taking supper in the village of Saint-Alexandre. LePage was supposedly sighted in the village and had chased after the women, but this seems unlikely as he was living in the Joliet district at the time, around 80 miles away, and Eulalie didn't believe her husband was involved in the murder, if there even was a murder. A cursory search of French-language newspapers of the time doesn't turn up any references to a double murder in Iberville in 1867, while the distinctive surname Fauti doesn't appear in Canadian census records of 1861 or 1871. That was in March. Two months later, LePage was back in the papers after his former landlord Toussaint Ledoux of East Hill approached H.H. Farnsworth with new evidence. Ledoux had just torn down an old barn on his property 
and found a woman's linen undergarment hidden inside. This garment, presumably a petticoat or chemise, was spotted with blood, and Farnsworth confirmed it belonged to Marietta, though her nightdress and slippers remained missing. Farnsworth believed LePage had buried the items, and maybe that's true, but there were also rumors that Uleli LePage had acquired a new nightgown around the time of the murder. Ulali never returned to St. Albans. The family left Suncook between 1878 and 1880 and settled in Lowell, Massachusetts, where the children worked in the cotton mills and Ulali kept house. She never remarried or changed her name and died in Fitchburg in 1898. New England murder ballad, The Suncook Town Tragedy, sometimes called Josie Langmaid, continued to circulate as late as 1958 when it was recorded in Springfield, Vermont by the musicologist Helen Hartness Flanders. The ballad describes the murder of Josie Langmaid as well as the trial of Joseph LePage, but makes no mention of Marietta, not even as an afterthought. In 1874, her family had moved to California, and in time, there was no one to remember her. Wanton Abel died in Massachusetts in 1891, while H. H. Farnsworth passed away in 1902. Three years later, Aldous Brannard wrote to the Daily Messenger to reveal his role in breaking the case. He'd kept quiet for 31 years. Presumably this was because he didn't wish to embarrass Farnsworth, who had botched the original investigation so badly. But it's also true that Abel and Farnsworth weren't alive to contradict Brannard's account. Brannard himself died in 1908. George Smith left St. Albans after 1880 and ended up in Florence, Italy, where he spent the final 25 years of his life. He died in 1918. His mother, Ann Eliza, Aldous Brannard's sister, enjoyed a brief career as a novelist in later life with her antediluvian fantasy, Sayola, receiving acclaim upon publication in 1878. She died in 1905, and the Smith Mansion was destroyed by fire in 1924. East Hill is now called French Hill. The old road is gone, as is the sawmill, and Marietta's monument is forgotten, lost to the trees and brush. She's buried in Greenwood Cemetery, but her stone looks east to the hill, where the fall colors kindle and fade, and Marietta, too, the memory of her. She's running, getting away. Thank you for listening to These Dark Mountains. Today's episode was sourced from various newspapers and public records, and from the 1876 pamphlet entitled The Trial of Joseph LePage, the French Monster. I am also indebted to Chad Abramovich and the Obscure Vermont blog for information concerning Marietta's gravesite. Our music and theme are by John Mills. Episode transcripts are available at our website, thesedarkmountains.com.